Hey everyone, and welcome to the Uncorked Corner podcast, where we cover the full spread of food and beverage industry topics. My name is Bianca, PR and marketing professional by day and food and wine connoisseur by night. And my name is Nick, an accountant with a passion for barbecue, beer, and whiskey. Today, we are welcoming New England-based author J.M. Hirsch. In this episode, J.M. Hirsch gives us the surprising journey that led him to writing about food. We also talk through ciders for fall, New England restaurants to try, and learn more about his primarily plant-based diet. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to us. With that said, let's welcome JM to the show. Welcome to the show. Can we have you start by introducing yourself to our audience and giving them a bit more information on your background? Sure. So I'm J.M. Hirsch. I am the editorial director of Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, which is a multi-platform food media company. I, that's what everybody calls themselves these days, I guess. And we have a TV show on PBS. We have a radio show on NPR. We have a magazine. We do cookbooks. We have a culinary school that's now all virtual. But And what else do we have? We have probably a lot more stuff, but that's what we have. And, and we've been around for about five years and uh, it's going strong. Our kind of stated mission is to canvas the world uh, quite literally and look for foods and techniques and ingredients that change the way we cook. Awesome. Fun fact, I actually work at 177 Milk Street when there's no pandemic. <laughs> 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 Are you up? You must be upstairs because we're on the yeah. <laughs> we're way up top. <laughs> but I was like, that's so funny. When I reached out to you, I said, that's definitely that's definitely the address. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I hope you don't mind if while we're talking, I make a cocktail. It seemed like the only respectable thing to do. No, go for it. <laughs> what are you making? Anything special? I so this is my kind of go-to cocktail these days. I learned it in London. It's called a Vukere, it's actually from New Orleans, and it's kind of a happy spot between, say, a Manhattan and an Old Fashioned. It's got rye, Benedictine, sweet vermouth, and cognac. I love it. So, nice. it seems like a respectable thing to do. Of course, we're the Uncorked Corner Podcast. Get it uncorked, <laughs> right? We approve. <laughs> Um, awesome. So the two books that we have now, so you have a new book coming out, which is focused on cocktails, correct? Yes. 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 Shake, strain, done. It's craft cocktails at home. And uh, the idea is, so, you know, for my job, I get to travel the world and I know it's a, it's a hardship. And when I do, I always check out the best bars and wherever I am. And I love to geek out, talking to the bartenders, learning their tricks and, the problem is, and, and this is my complaint about most cocktail books, is that they're written for people at those bars, the, the bartenders and the mixologists. And it's almost impossible to recreate those drinks back home because we don't create these weird elixirs and infusions and, and have, you know, 30 bottles, you know, gin to pick from. And so my goal was to create recipes that use things that most people will have around their house, but that can still produce craft quality cocktails. So that's the, that's the mission of Shake Strain Done. 
Love that. And it's very different than your other books that you have. So can you tell us how you kind of went from, you know, the books that, that we have here, which are High Flavor, Low Labor and Beating the Lunch blo Lunchbox Blues, which is totally different. How yeah. did you go from one to the other? Uh, parenthood, <laughs> which you can actually trace the evolution of, of my uh, drinking from those books, I guess. No, the, <laughs> the first book was The High Flavor, Low Labor, which was, I wrote when my son was probably four or five years old. And, you know, it's all about get, using high flavor ingredients to get great food on the table fast. And because I, you know, I always worked from home, uh, but I always had a full-time job and my ex-wife and I never used childcare. So we just kind of worked opposite shifts and to make sure that one of us was always home with our son. And that meant that getting dinner on the table was a bit of a rush order. And so over time, you know, I realized that I was using these kind of potent ingredients, you know, the balsamic vinegars, the prosciuttos, uh, the jalapeno chilies of the world to pack a lot of flavor into really simple cooking. And that was kind of the beginnings of that book. And then as my son got older, after that book came out, I, I started what ended up at the time, I, I just thought it was stupid, frankly. Um, it was a blog about my son's lunches. And, and I was actually meeting a friend in New York and, and I was describing to her the lunches that I packed for my son, which admittedly were somewhat creative, and, but not fussy, just creative. And I hate those bento boxes, you know, the ones where the, where the moms craft the rice to look like mice and they carve the cheese, <laughs> the alligators and stuff. I think that's crazy. I mean, they, they need to up their meds. And, but I did make creative lunches and, and the friend I was talking to said, you really got to start a blog about this. And of course, back when people did blogs. And I said, no, that's stupid. Nobody's going to read that. And, you know, Talked to her, you know, four months later, and she said, did you start that blog? And I said, no, this is stupid. So anyway, a couple months later, uh, she kept harassing me, and kind of as a petulant child, I said, fine, I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to take a picture of the kid's lunch every day. I'm just going to throw down a few words and say what's in his lunchbox, and that's it. And I'm going to post it, and you'll see nobody's going to read it. Well, then, you know, NPR caught wind of it, and Martha Stewart caught wind of it, and the, you know, all these newspapers, any, I got a lot of press coverage for something that I really wasn't even putting much effort into, and um, it was unexpected and weird, and the whole world seemed to be watching what I would pack for my son at lunch every day, and that was crazy, and especially since he actually at the time didn't even know I was doing a blog about his lunches. He was just eating them every day, clueless. And then uh, Rachel Ray, who I've known for a long time because of my, my job, uh, she was getting, she had moved her publishing, her cookbook publishing to Simon & Schuster. And they, she was going to get her own imprint as part of that deal. And she approached me about doing a book about the Lunchbox Blues, which was the name of the blog at the time and for uh, as her first book under her imprint. And so what started as really a stupid idea to write about my son's lunches and post pictures of them uh, turned into a book. <laughs> and, and I promised myself that that would be the last book I did. And so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of those lunches look pretty incredible. I wish you were making my lunches. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'm, my son is now going to be a junior in high school. 
and I am delighted to no longer be packing lunches. <laughs> and that was <laughs> the best part about the, you know, him uh, doing remote uh, learning for the second half of last year. Now I could just throw some lunch on the table and forget about it. <laughs> there you go. That's the easiest way to do it. Now, when get, talking about cooking in the whole culinary industry, do you have any sort of specific training or background in that when you were coming up? I have a master's degree in philosophy. And I was working on my PhD in just war theory of applied ethics, uh, which is a applied ethics doesn't even exist as a, as a subject matter anymore. It's just ethics now. And I had no culinary training whatsoever. I always liked food. We were always a food family uh, growing up. And I went to school overseas, I should say. I did my master's in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was working my PhD in Cape Town, South Africa. And I, when I decided to not finish my PhD because I realized there were no job opportunities for somebody who studied the justifications of violence, I came home to the United States and kind of wondered what to do with myself. Uh, I was cruising around in what was then the infancy of the internet and found some guy giving two young women advice about how to apply to the Associated Press. And I thought, well, I can do that. And because I was young and cocky and stupid. And so I applied uh, to the AP uh, and got a job. I didn't have a journalism background, but I obviously had a research and writing background. And uh, that was actually something that the AP uh, favored. Uh, they like to, at least at the time, they liked to hire people without a traditional journalism background. Uh, so, but more with critical thinking skills. And so I, I had that. And so they offered me a job and here in New Hampshire. And I worked for probably two or three years covering, mainly covering youth issues and crime. And I did a lot with the Catholic Church uh, sex abuse scandal. And in the process of all of that, I started uh, noticing that the AP food editor at the time uh, was doing a vegetarian column among the various things that she produced every week for the AP. And as only somebody in their early 20s can do, I was very cocky and I sent her an email one day uh, because I had noticed, I was vegetarian at the time, and I noticed that uh, her vegetarian column was always really boring. You know, it was another tofu this or, or mashed pea that. And, and it was really not very exciting. And, and I had grown up vegetarian, so I was pretty familiar with ways to make vegetarian food delicious. And so I sent her this stupid cocky email. This seems to be a trend with me. Uh, a stupid cocky email where I said to her, geez, who is doing this? You know, because it's awful. And of course, you know, the only response I could possibly get from an email like that was, well, but of course she was doing it. Um, but bless her, she, uh, she had the uh, confidence to say to me that, well, if you think you can do better, it's all yours. And, and that's how I started writing about food. I was still covering crime, but I was doing a weekly vegetarian cooking column. And one thing led to another. I happened to be in the right time uh, and right place because as a culture and, and a society, the United States began taking food as both health and science and, and policy uh, much more seriously. And the AP hadn't had a dedicated food writer up to that point. And so I became the, the AP's food writer. 
covering national food policy and health and science. And I did that for, I forget, maybe two, three, four years. And then when the food editor retired, I replaced her and I was the food editor for, oh gosh, at least a decade. And uh, I was there. Uh, I worked for our New York office, but I worked from here in New Hampshire from home. And then I, uh, when uh, Christopher Kimball was starting, uh, as most people probably know, he left uh, America's Test Kitchen, uh, Cook's Illustrated, and started Milk Street about five years ago. And he approached me about uh, coming on as editorial director for the company. And uh, it was a hard decision to make because I was leaving a 20 year career at the Associated Press, um, but it was definitely a great decision and I haven't looked back. And so no, I have all of which is to say, I have absolutely no culinary background, but I've been in the food world for probably you know, 15, 20 years now. And, uh, and I love it and I do love to cook. Um, I'm not a particularly exacting cook. I, I just try to throw things together. And, and along the way, I discovered that I also like making cocktails and that was the remedy to parenthood. <laughs> and on so. both of those things, when it comes to the cocktails and the food, you mentioned you do a lot of traveling and that's where you learn a lot of these things. Is that your primary inspiration for finding new recipes for these cocktails and foods? Or do you do a lot of research online or in books otherwise? So uh, a lot of both actually. And, you know, so I do travel a lot. I, um, I travel when, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. I tend to travel overseas probably one to two weeks out of every five. And, and I love checking out the bar scene and learning from the pros because I'm absolutely not a pro. And uh, I love chatting with them and, and learning so much. And you see so many different ingredients and so many different techniques uh, that it's, it's really fascinating. And the people are doing some really creative, cool stuff in the cocktail world. And I absolutely love to geek out about that with them. And so that was the bulk of Shake Strain Done uh, was developed that way by kind of sitting at the bar and talking to the bartenders and learning as much as I can and tasting their great cocktails and, and trying to figure out, all right, how do, I, how do I deconstruct this so that it's not as complicated, but just as good, you know, so that, so that somebody at home without all of the tools and tricks and ingredients that the guy at the bar has can make something pretty similar and, and equally good. And that's how that book came together. I'm now actually, because again, I'm stupid, I'm working on the next cocktail book. And <laughs> this one's not even out yet and I'm working on the next one. And uh, this one is going to be pure research. And I didn't expect how much I would really enjoy the geeking out part of it. And it's tracing, it's choosing a classic cocktail, such as like a gin and tonic, and tracing the many different ways that gin can present itself in a cocktail and, the, and, and how varied that can be. And it's all based on research of classic recipes that date back to like the 1850s and 1860s and kind of modernizing them as needed and but learning a ton because it's really cool stuff I mean they were doing really neat things and and what I find fascinating like I say is the, the many different ways that one liquor 
can present itself. And I've been researching, I've spent the summer researching gin and, and, and its various cocktails. And there have been like the Bijou, which is a classic one. It's, it drinks like an old fashioned, like a, a lighter kind of brighter old fashioned and which kind of blew me away. Uh, so it's, so, so all of which is to say a lot of research and a lot of tasting. <laughs> of all and, the places that you've been, do you have a favorite? Mm, a favorite country or, or city or? Um, Any destination. All right, so the city I would move to in a heartbeat if I could, uh, because I, I, I'm so in love with it is Copenhagen. And it has an amazing food and bar scene. Uh, the weather is kind of weird, but also beautiful. And it's such a pedestrian and bicycle friendly city. It's got so much art and culture going on. And I absolutely love it. Uh, so I would, I would move there in a heartbeat, but I also, I also absolutely love Italy. Um, very few parts of Italy I've ever been to. And I've, I've been all over Italy because obviously Italian food is very popular in the United States. So for Milk Street, I go there a lot. And um, I've been to very few parts of Italy that I wouldn't gleefully move to. Um, but, you know, I was in, I was in Cambodia uh, about a year ago, and that was, you know, there are parts of it that are kind of touristy, but I was in the Kampot region, which is where black peppercorns came from, and that was amazing. I had never ridden a motorbike before, and I rented a motorbike and buzzed off through these dirt roads and almost dying many, many times, because I'm really not good at riding a, a motorbike, it turns out. But it was really cool. And I, I was really fascinated with Cambodia. It was a very fascinating, food was delicious. And I was, I was at a restaurant and the waiter invited me to his boss's wedding the next night. And, and I thought, when am I ever gonna get a chance to go to a Cambodian wedding again? And so I thought I might as well. And so there I was, one of 600, 700 guests at this wedding. Uh, and, and the food was amazing. And they didn't lie when they said, you don't put down your beer because the second you do, they will replace it with another one. And they certainly did. Our table was littered with beers. So <laughs> it's very hard to pick a place <laughs> if that's not happening. <laughs> In your own kitchen, do you find there to be a certain region or type of food that you use most in your cooking? Yeah, I mean, so I'm horrible, despite the fact that I've written and edited recipes for probably close to 20 years now and written multiple cookbooks, I'm really bad at following recipes. In fact, I don't think I've ever followed a recipe to the letter. I just can't do it. And I, I, I know a lot of people want and need that. And, and I totally respect that. I can't do it because it makes me miserable while I'm cooking. So I prefer to just kind of look at a recipe, get the general idea, and then just kind of run with it. So with all that said, I would say I gravitate to North African, Middle Eastern flavors. And I would be hard pressed to say that my cooking is in any way authentic. But I certainly use a lot of the ingredients that I find, you know, in North Africa. And, and India as well, like uh, Kashmiri chili powder uh, and sumac from North Africa and tahini from the Middle East. I would say that that kind of belt of the world from North Africa through the Middle East into India is probably where I gravitate to most. When I was younger 
and more, I'm still mostly vegetarian, but I was much more strict vegetarian when I was younger and actually even vegan and macrobiotic in, in those crazy days. And I, I was much more Asian influenced back then. And, and I did a lot of Asian cooking because the macrobiotic and vegan cooking back a few, few decades was in the United States at least was very influenced by Asian cultures. And uh, today I feel like that's changed a lot. But back then I did a lot of Asian and now it tends to be more North African, Middle Eastern, Indian. And do you ever venture into meat at all or have you sworn off meat completely? Oh no, I definitely eat meat. And so for me, it would be a job hazard to not eat meat because when I go someplace, I have to eat whatever's put in front of me, uh, sometimes, often, oftentimes to my detriment. And um, so, uh, you know, I always, I, I always travel with antibiotics, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, but I, um, you know, I, when I'm traveling, I will eat meat uh, because that's my job and I enjoy it. I don't dislike it at all. Uh, but when I'm home, I eat probably 99% vegetarian. Uh, I just prefer it. I prefer how I feel. I just prefer the taste of vegetables. And uh, that said, you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm overseas, uh, I, especially if I'm in Italy, I want prosciutto. I mean, there's no question about that. <laughs> and you do a lot with 177 Milk Street. Is there anything in particular that a project that you've worked on that is like your favorite so far? Uh, you know, I don't know that there's one project. I think the thing that I'm most happy about with Milk Street and, and the part that I feel like I've most been able to guide and, and kind of influence is, you know, when Chris and I met before I worked for him, uh, you know, we, we went out for lunch and, and I leveled with him. I said, look, you know, I know, you know, I, and, and I should back up. I've known Chris for, you know, decades. And because of my work at AP, I've, I've known, you know, what he was doing at America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Illustrated. And, you know, and I said to him, um, look, I've been a newsman for 20 years and you shouldn't hire me if you don't want a newsman's approach to food, because that's all I know how to do. And that's all I'm going to do. It's the right way to do it, I believe. And, and he said, well, that's actually exactly what I want. And so we never looked back after that. And I will say, you know, I'm, I think the thing I'm most pleased with is the fact that Milk Street does treat food as journalism. You know, we, we treat it with care and concern for accuracy and representation and for diversity and authenticity. And that is something that's apparent in everything we do from our culinary school to the magazine, absolutely. But even our books, our, you know, television show, our radio show, we treat food with a journalist's eye. And, and that's something that's very important to me. And, you know, and the unfortunate part is because of the changing media landscape, that shouldn't be something that's outlandish or rare. But these days it is, you know, there's not a lot, not a lot of us left standing doing this, you know, certainly the New York Times, the LA Times, uh, at, but there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of 
carcasses along the way, unfortunately. And, and you know, local newspapers used to do great food journalism and, and it's no fault of their own that they can't anymore. You know, these days your food editor at your local newspaper probably wears 12 other hats, you know, entertainment editor, sports editor, you know, calendar editor, and God knows what else. And that's sad and, and disappointing because there's a vibrancy in our local communities about food, about many things, of course, but certainly about food that used to be captured in your local newspaper. And now they simply can't afford to do it. And, and that's a shame. So maintaining, becoming a standard bearer for journalism in the food world uh, is probably what I'm most pleased with uh, in terms of my work at Luxury. You could describe your writing style in three words. What would they be? A.A. <laughs> um, a. Milne. Does that ring a bell? No? All right. I think a. so, no. A.A. Milne is the author of Winnie the Pooh. And <laughs> he, Alan Alexander Milne. He, um, don't, do yourself a favor if you want to learn about great writing. First of all, ignore anything Disney has ever done to Winnie the Pooh. I refuse to acknowledge that anything Disney Pooh even exists. Go get the real Pooh stories. There's two books and The House of Pooh Corner and Winnie the Pooh. Uh, and they, his writing is absolutely brilliant. He says more in five words by choosing the words he doesn't use, then most people can say in 500 words. And it's his writing is, I mean, he was one of the greatest satirists of his time. And, and then he turned that perspective on to writing for children. And when, if, you, if you watch the Disney version of Pooh, all you get is this sappy, stupid, lovey-dovey crap. If you read The Real Pooh, those creatures were brutal to one another, cutting one another down constantly, insulting one another, and doing, quite, doing so quite effectively. And, and the characters were so well-developed and, and so biting at times, and, and, so, and yet so insightful. And, and like I say, he, he is just a master of saying so much with so little. And so when I'm writing, I, I always think, in the background, okay, how many of the words that I just wrote can I eliminate and still convey what I'm trying to say? And, and there's a power in that because when we're spoon fed all of the words of a story, then our brain isn't working. And when writing leaves you to fill in certain gaps and certain spots, not that you shouldn't be conveying the information, but when you, when you, force the reader to think through how each word connects to the other and what the message is in that, then the reader becomes part of the reading. And, and I think that's a much more immersive experience. And, and so I, I cannot and will never claim to be as good as Milne, but he certainly inspires me. And, and that's what I, that's certainly what I aim for. <laughs> not you're probably expected. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, but it's a great answer. Um, you're based in New England, so you're in New Hampshire. Yeah. For someone who's visiting the Northeast or New England in particular, are mm -hmm. there specific restaurants or bars that you would recommend normally during normal circumstances that they visit? Yeah, go to New York. Uh, 
Um, so this has been the bane of my existence in, in New Hampshire for, for decades now. Uh, I moved to New Hampshire because uh, my parents lived here and I moved back here from South Africa. And so I ended up being the, the cliched Gen Xer living in his parents' basement for a few years while I figured out what to do with myself and eventually landed at AP. And the AP, you know, you kind of get hired to whatever bureau you, they happen to have an opening in. And I happened to land here in New Hampshire because that's where they had an opening. And so I, you know, they, um, sorry, I just canceled the call so that wouldn't refresh my mind. <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, best restaurants. Yes, okay, I'm sorry. Yep, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I was distracted by a call. And so, um, yeah, I came here and I realized very quickly that there's no good food in New Hampshire. And, and I know that, you know, everybody in New Hampshire hates me every time I say this, but I say it all the time and in all sorts of national media and they'll just have to suck it up because there is no good food here. And anytime somebody tries to open what could be a good restaurant, it ends up folding because nobody goes there. And so I don't find much in New Hampshire. Uh, Vermont, I don't get to very often. I know there's some good restaurants in Vermont. Uh, Portland, Maine is where to go. Portland. That's where I live, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah, Portland is now. I don't get up there nearly as often as I would like, but uh, Portland, Maine. I mean, duck fat. I could just live at duck fat, and and I know that that that's kind of an aging uh, entity up there, but I still go for the fries there. And uh, there's a. It's it's just I love Portland because it's such a vibrant city. I think they could do better on the bars, but they definitely have a great food scene. And back in the day, I used to go up to Arrows occasionally, which was fantastic. And, um, but Boston, Boston is very hit or miss. Um, there's a new place I tried just before the pandemic that was the Fox and the Fork or the Fork and the Knife or the Fox and the Knife, something like that. It was very good. And um, the bar scene, mm, I, you know, New York. <laughs> I always tell people go to New York and um, you know I I just I you can get good food great food almost on every corner in New York and at, so I should I should say that I when I was working at AP I would travel to New York about once a month and for you know three five days and so I, you, New York used to be my second home in many ways. And I used to eat my way through the city because I was the AP food editor. And so when you do that and then you come home to New Hampshire and, you know, you have friendlies and McDonald's and, you know, some well-meaning uh, independent places that, you know, don't quite have their act together. It's, it's kind of depressing. <laughs> so I don't often recommend people go out to eat here. <laughs> I'll be in New Hampshire this weekend, but I'll be doing my own barbecue. So. That, see, that's the way to do it. And, and when people tell me, you know, where should I eat? I say, you know, cook for yourself in New Hampshire, because that's what I do. <laughs> I do love the state, I should add. I love the state. It's got a great quality of life. We just don't have a good food scene. Uh, we have a couple of bars that are trying. They're trying. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a work in progress. <laughs> What do you, how do you feel about uh, the whole craft drink scene outside of cocktails when it comes to craft beers and everything? Because in New England, I know there's an awful lot of that. 
There's a tremendous amount of it. And in fact, my, my sister-in-law is tapped into that. She works for the uh, Sam Adams crew and uh, she, uh, she does, she, she's always talking about all sorts of great stuff. And um, it's cool, it's fun. I don't pretend to know much about it. I, I'm, I'm an IPA guy, you can't get hoppy enough for me. I don't, I haven't spent the time, because I've been so focused on cocktails the last three or four years, I haven't spent the time that I would like to studying it and really learning it. But I'm always in search for um, the hoppiest beer I can find. I love Lord Hobo. I love the boom sauce. Uh, back in the day, I loved Hetty Topper. And I did a, a road trip through Vermont. Because back, I don't know if they still do this or not, but they limited how much of it you could buy because it was rated the best beer in the world for a, a short amount of time. And I did a road trip with a friend through Vermont one day to buy as many cases as of heavy copper as we possibly could. And we had the back of the, you know, we just went from one store to the next to the next to the next because they all limit how much you can buy. And I, I, we had a trunk full of beer and it was fantastic. So I love it. And, there, you know, and, and there's actually some interesting craft distilleries too popping up and Hardshore up in Maine is fantastic. And I love their gin, it's fantastic. And Bully Boy down in Boston, South Boston, I think, is fantastic. And um, there's a cider place in, it's, I don't think it's in Cambridge, it's right north of the financial district. Um, east, east side? Is it down east cider? Down east, thank you, yes, yes. And they're very good. <laughs> they're really good. So I am, and, and I am a picky bastard about my, uh, cider because I spent so much time living in Scotland where cider is like water and so when I came home from Scotland I, I never it took years and years and years to find a cider that I thought was good enough to drink in the United States and and there is there, especially in Vermont there are hundreds of craft ciders and I don't like any of them and I realize it's probably just me but I'm used to the style in the UK which is very different from what we have in the US. And, and it took me until I found Down East to find a cider here that I actually like. And I actually recently found a new one, I think Bantam, which is from Massachusetts as well, I think. And yeah, I think they're out of Somerville, right? I think so, that sounds right. And that one's actually <laughs> really good. So, you know, it's coming slowly. <laughs> and yeah. what's the difference between the ciders that you don't like and the ciders that you do like? Is it the, the dryness or? Yeah, it's a it's a dryness and a fruitiness, and so and it's which is and it's not about sweetness because I don't like a sweet cider. Although I I think the ciders in the UK do tend to be a little bit sweeter, uh, but it's but they're not dry and they tend to be a little bit more fruity and 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 just actually I think the 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 word I would go to most would be smooth. It's kind of like. It's a much smoother cider in the UK. And here I find that they're a little harsh. So I have a recommendation for you that I've been recommending to everyone since I tried it. Just a couple oh. of weeks ago, I was up in Bangor, Maine at okay. Orono Brewing Company, and they had on their guest taps a cider out of Wisconsin called oh. Cider Boys. I don't cider know if you've heard of it. B-O-Y-S? Yep, B-O-Y-S. And okay. they had one, it was specifically the Grand Mimosa cider, oh. and it was phenomenal it was the best really? cider we'd ever had You're and we've right. been drinking um some down east too and uh we've had a couple other people that make cider on here as well and we talked to you but this cider boys one was 
absolutely to die for when it comes to cider. Really? Oh, wow. If you want something that's super smooth, it doesn't have any dryness, but you can taste all the good flavor that you want, that's yep. the way to go. Yep. Nice. Have you ever seen it locally other than at, at, in Bangor? Uh, I tracked it down. It just got to Maine recently. I called up the craft beer guild that distributes it, and I found there's two stores up here that sell it. There's one in Portland, <laughs> RSVP Liquors, and there's one in uh, Wyndham. Uh, Patman's Liquor has it as well. So, must be pretty good, Nick, if you tracked it down like that. <laughs> I had, listen, we, we tried it. It was on a guest tap. I tried it by chance at a beer place. My girlfriend isn't a big beer drinker, and that was the one cider on the menu. So it's definitely going to be a staple in our fridge going forward. But. Oh, nice. I'll have to check. Uh, I'll get online and see if they're sold anywhere here in New Hampshire. Uh, yeah. The pickings tend to be slim here. But. Yep. <laughs> I, they've had um, some variety packs of like four different flavors popping up, though, at okay. some more stores. So I'd take a look for those. Good. All right. Excellent. All right. Um, I think that's all that we have for tonight then. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else you want to leave off on before we finish and then let us know where we can find you online and on social media? Yeah, I'm on all of our social media uh, at, at JM underscore Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H. And, uh, you know, I used to post lots of travel photos from around the world, and that obviously has stopped. And so now I have an excuse to post more cocktail photos and recipes, and I try to keep them seasonal and fun, and I'm always eager to hear people's ideas for cocktails, too, and what they've had, because I can't travel and go to great bars anymore, so I'm always eager to hear what people are drinking and, and funky new cocktails that they're finding. I was in London in December, I think it was, and I think I think there are, at the time, there were 12 of the world's top bars in London. And uh, my husband and I went, he, we were there on vacation, and we went through all 12 of them in, I think, three nights. It was a, a very liquid vacation, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But I, so I missed that. So I'd be eager to hear what people are drinking. <laughs> I need inspiration. All right. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us tonight. We're looking forward to reading the books you sent over and also reading a new book that's going to be coming out soon. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Goodbye. See you guys later. Be sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.